This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray that you would speak to us again today by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Today, we hear a lot about identity. We hear about identity politics that impacts all sorts of things, including gender, religion, legislation, and much more. There is widespread disagreement around whether, for example, gender is innate, a given, immutable, or whether alternatively it is merely a social construct, fluid, and can be changed by medical intervention or self-declaration. These and many other identity questions are the waters in which we swim. Now, I'm not going to attempt this morning to answer all of these important questions. But there are underlying questions about identity, including how we self-identify, that I believe must be addressed. And the scriptures appointed for today help us. Our gospel reading begins with a question about the identity of Jesus. Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered him, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. Then Jesus makes it more personal, a little less safe. But who do you say that I am? And of course, one day, everyone will have to answer that question. Everyone will have to declare who Jesus is. St. Paul speaks of a day to come when at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess, everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, alongside the question, who is Jesus, I want us to consider the other question that I put to the children earlier, another important question, who are you. Just as it is vital to know and understand the identity of Jesus, it's also vital that we know our own identities. Indeed, how we identify ourselves can have a huge impact on how we live our lives and navigate the world. And so I want to ask you to take a moment right now and think about that question And how you would answer that question, who are you? Perhaps if someone you didn't know terribly well were to ask you, what would you say? I'm going to give you 10 or 15 seconds to think about it. Okay, now that you're ready, turn to the person next to you or behind you, and in 10 seconds or less, tell them who you are. 10 seconds each, go. All right, five-second warning. All right, come back. (laughs) 
there are obviously many ways that we could choose to identify ourselves. I mean, for example, I could identify myself by reference to my education or my work or my family situation. I could say, well, I'm a son, I'm a father, I'm a husband. There are other ways that we may answer the question, who are you? Whether publicly or privately, with or without accurate self-awareness, one could identify as a success, a high achiever, a great person. Or one could identify as a failure, a disappointment, a loser. These things matter. St. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, wants the Christians there to know who they are. He wants them to understand at the very core of their being that their essential identity is as children of God. Our reading from Galatians this morning, and that's where I'm going to be focusing, gives us both a reality check about who we are and some real hope. I want us to dig a little bit deeper into our identities. Just as knowing who Jesus is changes everything, so also does knowing who you are. In verse 29 of our reading from Galatians, we read, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring as according to the promise. So there you have it. But what does it mean? Whose heirs and what promise? First, who's heirs? Verse 26 tells us, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And I'm going to come back to that. Second, what promise? Actually, what promise? Tell me. It's warm, you see, and I don't want you to go to sleep. What promise? Abraham, yes. The promise um, that he's referring to is the promise that God made to Abraham. And you can read about that promise in Genesis chapter 12. The promise was that God would bless Abraham and give him an heir. This is Abraham who was as good as dead. He was 100 and his wife was 99. And go back and read the story. It's a great story. Well, later in Genesis, we learn that Abraham's belief and trust in God's promise was credited to him as righteousness. God's intention was that Abraham should have a single worldwide family defined in terms not of parentage or ethnicity, but of faith. Why then did God give the law to Moses? If the basis on which we can be made right with God is his promise and our acceptance of that promise through faith, what's the point of the law? Well, Paul, realizing that his statement rather begs that question, tackles it head on in verse 19 when he says, why then the law? And we pick up his argument in the verses before us this morning. Paul is explaining that the purpose of the law given by God to Moses some 430 years after God's promise to Abraham, the purpose of it was twofold. twofold. First, to act as a guard. Second, to act as a tutor. And what both things show us is that the law did not come to tell us about salvation, as in the way to be right with God is to keep all the commandments, but rather to tell us about sin, as in there's a problem. Though the law does set out how you can live your life according to the maker's instructions, guess what? You can't do it. Nobody can. 
the law reveals to us a huge problem that every man, woman, boy and girl has had to face since the very beginning. We are lawbreakers and no one except Jesus has ever been able to keep the law. Commentator John Stott writes, the law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he's really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. So returning to our second question this morning, who are you? If we want to know who we are, then we have to face the brutal facts and be completely honest with ourselves. You know, we may be used to introducing ourselves with, hello, my name is fill in the blank, and I'm an engineer, and I'm a mom, or a dad, or, or whatever. Perhaps, instead, we can take a leaf out of the 12-step programs. Well, actually, the Bible, from where so much of that good stuff comes, and at least inwardly acknowledge that a more honest way to introduce ourselves would be to say, Hi, my name is Jonathan, and I'm a sinner. I was talking about this with a friend some time ago, and he didn't really like that. He said, I, I don't like to think of myself as a sinner. It, it's very negative. Surely, because God is love, we, we don't have to think of ourselves as sinners, do we? Well, Yes, God is love, and God did send his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But the truth is we are very much still sinners who constantly need to experience God's forgiveness. We are all lawbreakers. Now, we may rail against civil laws that we don't like or think are rather stupid. I know I do. I'd like to replace 99% of all the stop signs with yield signs. It would be just much better. And not to mention getting rid of all those ridiculous four-way stops. What you need is mini roundabouts. They're just much, much better. Now, the trouble is, we tend to do the same with God's law. We don't like what God says about having no other gods but him. So we worship all manner of things in our lives above or before the one true God. Or we don't like what God says about sex, so we ignore it or twist it. We don't like what we find in the Bible, and so then we, we tend to rationalize and justify our behavior that actually is going against God's, laws, God's law. Or we don't like what God has to say about pride or gossip, and of course the list goes on and on. We think that we know best Americans are really good at this. I mean, it's not unique to Americans. I think it's part of the human condition. But we really do think we're better than others, and we know best. It's a problem. And yet the surprising thing is that God's law is part of his gracious gift to us as his wayward creatures. It shows us how God wants us to live and demonstrates to us both our willfulness in railing against it and the sheer bankruptcy of our efforts to keep it. Sometimes, in response to the truly terrible things in our society, mass shootings, the killing of the unborn, chronic discrimination, to name just three, 
some may believe, and I think do believe, that if only we had the right party in power, or we had the right laws, or the right enforcement of laws, then we could put society right. Now, hear me, I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for justice and for good laws and the right enforcement of those laws. Of course we should. And yet, the sad truth is that none of that gets to the root problem of sin. The only way that we can be right with God, the only way we can know who we are and whose we are, is by putting our faith in the God who promises us and is able to give us salvation. As we read in verse 25, but now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to a disciplinarian. That's the law. For in Christ, you are all children of God. And the good news is that when we turn to Christ, when we believe and trust God and accept his promise of forgiveness and the new life in Christ, then we can say not only, hello, my name is Jonathan and I'm a sinner, but also I am a beloved child of God. And that changes everything. For then, my identity before God is not primarily that of a lawbreaker and sinner, though it is that, but rather, if I've been adopted by God, my identity is as his son. A son who remarkably, surprisingly, unworthily is beloved, forgiven, welcomed, delighted in. I had the great privilege of coming to know that deep, deep in my soul when I was 16 years old. And it changed my life. Indeed, knowing my identity in Christ has sustained me through every trial and every difficulty since that day. As a son of God, I'm also an heir, heir of the promise of God's blessing first given to Abraham. And this is good news for every son and every daughter of God by faith in Christ. We are heirs. Together, we are children of God. And in the light of this reality, when I'm feeling lost or ashamed, exposed or afraid, not only can I turn to God through Christ, but I can also turn to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And the wonderful picture Paul gives us here is that of the church family being made up of those who have faith and who have clothed themselves with Christ. As forgiven and loved followers of Jesus, as children of our Heavenly Father, our primary identity is in Christ. Just as the nurse's uniform or the judge's robe or the priest's collar are uniforms identifying the wearer with a particular job or professional calling, now we can say that Christ is our clothing and our ultimate identity is not in what we do or our social class or ethnic background, it is in Christ. And putting on Christ is also a metaphor of Christ covering our nakedness and shame. I want to take you back to the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had sinned, what did they do? Do you remember? They hide. They are hidden from God. They were naked and ashamed. But God comes to them and he clothes them. He 
provides them with clothing. He covers their shame. And Jesus does that for us who are in Christ and clothed with him today. We don't have to hide. And this is a wonderful picture of hope for us in the church. St. Paul continues as he says, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And while race, ethnicity, color, slavery, sexuality, and gender still divide so many in our world, the radical good news of the gospel is that God sees all of us first and foremost as people people made in his image, people whom he loves and cares about, people for whom Jesus died. We are made in the image of God as male and female. Following the fall of mankind in those opening chapters of the Bible, part of the curse set men to rule over women. In Christ, that is removed so that right relationships can be restored. The distinctions of oppression are gone in Christ. When Jesus came, God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled, and through Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so as Christians, we enter a new realm, a new society, God's society, God's kingdom, a kingdom which runs on a very different set of values from America or any other nation. And while St. Paul did not see the eradication of slavery come to fruition socially in his day, his teaching was radical. Paul wrote in a culture that depended on slavery, and yet here he is saying that in Christ we're equal. Oh, how we need to come to a fresh understanding of this today. Slavery is far from gone. I know this weekend many are celebrating the um, freedoms such as they are that have been won in this country. But according to the International Justice Mission, more than 40 million people are held in slavery today, of whom 25% are children in forced labor. And most of the rest are sex slaves, and 2 million of them are children. According to the United Nations, 4 billion people live outside the protection of the law. That means that their public justice systems, their police, their courts, their laws are so broken, so corrupt, so dysfunctional that there's nothing to protect and shield the people from violence and oppression. And we certainly need to work for just laws and support those who are working for just laws and write application of the law. And yet... While we do that, we must also understand and recognize that no law will be able to stop the problem of sin. That solution comes only through Christ, through his love, his grace, his justice, his completed work upon the cross. I began this sermon asking about our identities. Well, let me finish by asking again, who or what defines your identity? Is it your gender? Your sexuality? Your work? 
your status, your power, your politics, your influence, your ambitions, your achievements, your failures, your brokenness, your anxiety. None of these things come even close to describing who you are. None of these things can give us true meaning. No, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to God's promise. And in Christ, we are children of God. And that makes all the difference in our relationships with one another, as we are called to extend grace to one another and to others, especially to those who may in some way be different from you or me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, remember your baptisms and remember who you are and whose you are. You have been adopted as children of God's family and heirs of God's promise of life and freedom in Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.